Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> and our Old Testament reading and sermon text this morning is Psalm 29. So if you would turn there and then to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to be reading the entirety of that chapter is our New Testament reading. <clears throat> so first of all, Psalm 29 and then 2 Peter chapter 2. Hear the word of the Lord. A Psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. <clears throat> and then our New Testament reading from 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 22. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, 
though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering a wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs in mist driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boast of folly they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. The sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word, your Word read and heard, even words of judgment, words that speak of your righteousness and of the sinfulness of man and of women, children. We thank you for the salvation we have in Christ Jesus that you are able to save in the midst of this perverse generation. Father, apply these words to our hearts that we've heard read and now grant strength and unction of the Holy Spirit to your servant and preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That your people here may be edified In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Psalm 29. And I turn to this psalm because it's one I want to preach. As those who have been here uh, regularly in recent weeks know that as we're awaiting in anticipation what we believe will be the coming of our pastor, Matt Walker, in the fall... Of course, we're still praying about this. There are some things that need to be accomplished for the Lord to reveal His will, but we believe that we know what the Lord's mind is on this matter. What do I preach in the meantime? I came to the end of one series. Do I begin another series? And I decided, no, I'm going to step back and come back to the Psalms. I've done this before. 
and just look at different ones of my own choosing uh, in this interim period before we anticipate that Matt will be here uh, Lord's Day after Lord's Day uh, preaching the Word of God. And, and I came to Psalm 29. And this is an extraordinary psalm. Those that were here two weeks ago may remember, probably not, but this was the call to worship then. And Psalm 24, which was our call to worship this morning, was the text that I preached last time. They just switched places in the liturgy uh, this time. But I love to use this psalm as a call to worship because when you hear it, it should leave you trembling trembling before God, before His majesty, before His might, before His righteous judgments. Because that's what we see in this particular psalm. But we also see the refuge that we have through Christ Jesus in this same psalm. One of the things I want to do is at least a little bit to to introduce these psalms that I'm preaching by showing you something about where they are in the Psalter. I think everyone here who's heard me preach on the Psalms know that I've been convinced since 2015 that the Holy Spirit not only inspired the writing of the individual Psalms, but superintended over the process of the collecting, the selection, the arrangement, and the titling of the Psalms in the Psalter so that the Psalter as a whole is the Word of God. And, and since then, it's revolutionized my uh, approach and understanding of the Psalter as I have studied them on my own, sing them, and even, even preach them. And so where is this one in the Psalter? There's a lot more I could say that I'm going to say about this particular psalm. But just a couple of things. One is it's in book one. Psalms 1 to 41 is book one. There are five books in the Psalter. Dr. Michael Morales at Greenville Seminary would summarize book one as the rise of the Davidic kingdom. That is David coming to the throne and the early part of his reign. I think he's right about that. But where does it fall within book one? I'm not going to tell you everything to determine this, but I'm just going to tell you the conclusion that I've come to following Dr. Robertson. It comes in the midst of one of the chiastic structures or poetic pyramids in the psalm. Now you may not know what in the world I just said, so I'll explain it to you. There are seven places of the Psalter that Dr. Robertson has found where you have an odd number of psalms that are thematically related, and they go together. There are seven of them. This psalm comes in the midst of one of those, where you have an odd number of psalms seven psalms. One indicator is before the first one is an acrostic psalm that says, oh, this is here for a reason, it's a pointer. After the last of these seven is a quasi-acrostic psalm, a psalm that has 22 verses, the same number of letters as the Hebrew alphabet. And then the following is an acrostic psalm, which tells you these are bookends Look at what's in the middle, and you have seven psalms. And when you have an odd number of psalms that are thematically related, your eye goes to the middle psalm. That's the pinnacle psalm. And it's there for a purpose, and Psalm 29 is the pinnacle psalm. But, but what's the theme? 
And you can, I'm not going to go through and demonstrate this in detail, but you can look at it this afternoon. It's, this is a good homework assignment. Dr. Robertson calls them regal dwelling places psalms. Regal dwelling places psalms. The first three are talking about the temple, the temple of the Lord, as God's regal dwelling place here upon the earth. As you move to the last three after Psalm 29, it shifts to what's the regal dwelling place of David the king who wrote these psalms. And it's not Jerusalem. It's not Mount Zion. It's God himself. He is our dwelling place. The same thing we see in Moses' psalm, Psalm 90. So the dwelling place of the king, whether it be God, Yahweh, is king, his dwelling place here on earth in the temple, or the dwelling place of King David, which is God himself, who is his refuge, as you come to the latter half of these. I think that can be demonstrated, though I don't have time to demonstrate it here. But just something for food for thought hopefully maybe to tweak your interest, even if you didn't catch all of that, tweak your interest to maybe do a more thorough study of the arrangement of the Psalms. But if this is correct, then Psalm 29 is the pinnacle Psalm. Your eyes go here. And we see this is talking about the dwelling place, not of the king here on earth, David. This is talking about the dwelling place of God the king, Yahweh the king, but not the temple here on earth, but the dwelling place of God in the invisible heavens that he created and that he inhabited with his angels who are spiritual beings, the throne room of God that we get pictures of in the visions of Isaiah, the visions of Ezekiel, the visions of John the seer, and we're able to to peek into heaven itself, the dwelling place, the sanctuary of God in heaven, of which the sanctuary here on earth with her tabernacle or temple is, it's a copy, it's a replica here on the earth. Here we're peering into heaven itself, especially when you look at the call to worship. I used it this morning as a call to worship to you the people of God. But the psalm, the psalmist David is here actually calling to worship those who dwell in the invisible heavens, the the angels in particular. And of course we know the church triumphant, those who who have died in this life in Christ Jesus, they are in the invisible heavens, in the presence of God, and in the presence of the Lamb itself, himself. And so The call to worship here is to those who dwell in the heavens. And when we worship here, we're called to worship here. We need to recognize, yes, we're worshiping here on earth in these local assemblies, but we are worshiping before the invisible heavens that we can't see. Even as we learned in Sunday school this morning, God is a spirit. He is invisible. The angels he has created, they're spirits. They are invisible. This is the invisible abode of God this invisible heavens that we can't see with these eyes. But it is as real, maybe we could even say it's even more real than physical reality that is finite that God has called into into being. The call to worship is to these mighty ones. Listen to how it comes. 
ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Or it could be translated sons of God. It's often translated mighty ones. But I think it's clear he's talking about angelic beings who dwell in the presence of God. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. And note, it's Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh. Ascribe to Yahweh, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory due his name. Worship Yahweh and the splendor of holiness. This is the call to the angels that's going out in heaven who are worshiping Almighty God before his throne. Now something interesting about this psalm. I'm not going to dwell here either, but to let you know, because if you read commentaries, you're going to see this. There are critical commentators who say, oh, this psalm is just lifted from the Canaanite, from the Canaanite culture as, as a psalm that was sung to the storm god, to appease the storm god. It's lifted from there, and it's put into the Psalter. David didn't write it. They would be wrong. If indeed David is thinking in terms of such pagan songs, what he's saying is, no, Yahweh is God, not the storm god of the Canaanites. And that's why David says, ascribe to Yahweh. Yahweh is only used of the one true God. That's his covenant name. Ascribe to Yahweh glory. It's a call to worship in heaven to the angels, to worship God because of what they will see unveiled on the earth. We believe in God's sovereignty. We believe in God's decrees. His decreed whatsoever comes to pass. We call that, as it's worked out in history, redemptive history. And the angels don't know the end of all of it. They don't know the details. They're not omniscient as God is. And it's God's delight to superintend over redemptive history so that the angels are constantly saying, look at what God has done and praise him for the beauty of his wisdom and of his power as it's manifest in the earth. And so from the first two verses, which is calling them to worship, we then move to the earth itself. Now, one other thing I want to say about this that you, I haven't found it in other commentators. Again, Dr. Robertson's the one that pointed this out to me. Is the reference in this psalm to the covenant God made with Noah? Now, how would we find that? Noah's name's not here. Well, there's a key verse. Look at verse 10. The climax of this psalm, the climactic verse of this psalm, Yahweh sits enthroned over the flood. You see that? Over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever in the heavens, but here described, his footstool is over the flood. This Hebrew word for flood is only found one time in the Old Testament, and that's here outside of the flood accounts in the book of Genesis, the account of Noah and the ark and the flood that came. 
And, and I'm convinced Dr. Robertson is right that in David's mind, that judgment and that covenant is what lies behind this psalm in refuting the futile cries of the Canaanites to their supposed storm god. We're talking about Yahweh. He sits enthroned above the waters. He is enthroned above all of creation. And I think you see that here. And remember what happened in the flood account. I'm not going to turn to it because we'll have time to do it, but you can turn to it and you can read that following the flood, we have utter destruction of every living thing. Everything that breathes was destroyed in the flood, except for those that were the elect of God, the people that were on the ark and the animals that they brought on the ark. Those were the ones that were protected by God. It was like a little theocracy there in that ark. This is the people of God. The rest perished in judgment. A lot of times we think about Noah's Ark, we teach it in Bible school to children, like this cute little story about the animals they came on. They came on by Tuesdays, Tuesdays. Anybody remember that song? And forget 70s, 770s, or 77s, however you would say it, for the clean animals. This is not a cutesy little story. You need to think about bloated bodies floating all over the deep. You need to think about the utter destruction of the wicked and the wickedness of man of mankind. This described as every intent of the heart of man is only only wickedness continually. That's the description of the heart of man prior to the flood. But God God looked favorably upon Noah. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah and his family were saved. Their salvation from the midst of this generation of destruction that occurs since the fall. That flood in judgment is catastrophic. But it's not a consummating judgment. And so what's the covenant that God made with Noah? You remember? He says, I'm not going to do this again. I'm not going to do, I'm not going to destroy the world again by flood. Of course, there is the consummation judgment at the end of this age, which will be by fire. And that is the final judgment. And the Noahic flood is a type of that judgment that will come. When God stays his hand and says, I'll not destroy this world again by flood no matter the wickedness that's manifest. And he puts his sign in the heavens, the rainbow, to remind of that promise that comes from God. What is God saying is, God says, I'm going to stay my hand, and history is going to unfold. And at the heart of that history, I'm going to reveal my son, and he is going to redeem the people for himself through his shed blood. That history will take place. No matter how odious the sin of man is to my nostrils, my love for the elect will prevail, that history will take place, my son will come and he will die and he will save many. And Abraham's seed will be like the stars of the sky. The redemptive work and salvific work 
of Almighty God. That's what God is saying with the covenant that he makes with Noah. This is not going to happen again. And yet with each storm that comes, it's a reminder of the storm. With each rainbow, you see, it's a reminder of the promise. And what's depicted in the second strophe of this particular psalm is a storm. It's the storm of the voice of God. It starts over the sea, the northern part of the Mediterranean Sea that comes into the land, that comes down to Mount Hermon, that comes down further through the Holy Land all the way down to Kadesh in the south. You see the storm comes to the sea from the west onto the land and then it comes down to the south and is wreaking destruction wherever that storm goes. Anybody ever been in a storm? You guys live where storms come. I live in the mountains. We don't get hurricanes. (laughs) And typically we don't get tornadoes. Because the mountains tend to, to some extent, break up the systems as they're coming. But I can remember a few years ago when we had tornadoes. And we had the television on the news, and on the weather. And when you see fear in the eyes of the meteorologist as he looks at that low-pressure system and how deep it is, he says, I've never seen anything like this before. Go to shelter if you're in this corridor whatsoever. And we went to the basement twice that night, and we could hear sirens. We didn't have a limb down in our yard. But two miles away, the town was almost destroyed. When you're there, you realize, what can I do? I can pray to the Lord who stills the storm. (laughs) That's it. I can't go out and scream at the storm and make it go away. We, We think of storms. We think of the tempest. That's why we sang the Navy Psalm, which is praying for protection for the sailors that are on the sea. Because only God can protect. We think of the might of nature, but the might of nature is nothing compared to the might of God. Stormy wind fulfills his word, Psalm 148. He is sovereign over all. He's sovereign over the flood. He's sovereign over the waters of the flood. This is his great judgment. And every time there's a storm, it should remind us of that judgment of the past and the flood, that that judgment was just. And this generation, including us, left to ourselves, we are just as deserving of that judgment as they were in the days of Noah. And yet God stayed his hand. He said no more. And in the fullness of time, the Lord Jesus Christ came to redeem a people for himself. And we by the grace of God, escape the judgment of God and receive the blessing of God. And that's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Judgment is coming. It's why I read the Second Peter passage. It's a dark passage. It's why I read the whole chapter. I never read whole chapters. But I couldn't pick what to pick and what to leave out and what to leave in. It was descriptive of our generation that we're living in right now to a T. It was as if 
Peter wrote it today. But in it is both the hope for the people of God and salvation for the people of God, but judgment that is coming upon this wicked world. The flood is the first of that kind of judgment. And when Christ comes in the cloud of glories, there will be the consummate judgment in fire. That will be the final judgment. And other judgments that come, other storms that come that remind us of that, these are warning judgments. The final judgment is coming. Where do you flee for refuge? You flee to Jesus. You flee to Jesus who died for sinners. Okay. That's kind of laying out the broad parameters of the theology of the psalm. Just briefly, I want you just to hear the grandeur and the might of the middle section of this psalm as we read it, as David describes this storm that is the voice of the Lord. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory of God thunders. You hear that? You should tremble. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Seven times we hear of the voice of the Lord in this portion of the psalm. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. Lebanon, of course, is to the north of the Holy Land. It's a mountainous region. It's known for its cedars, for the might of these trees, the cedars of Lebanon. The voice of the Lord goes through. It's just like a tornado, his wind. that shatters the cedars into pieces. It's talking about the might of God and the might of his judgment. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf. Makes Syrian like a young wild ox. Syrian's another name for Mount Hermon. We read of Mount Hermon in a totally different context in Psalm 133 that the unity of the body of Christ is like the dew that comes down from Mount Hermon, this high mountain right on the border, right there in, in Lebanon and Israel and Syria, right in that area is where Mount, Mount, Mount Hermon is. In all probabilities, where Jesus ascended for the Mount of Transfiguration, was transfixed, was, was upon that particular mountain. Psalm 133 speaks of the dew that comes down. It's like refreshing waters that brings life and green and blessing to the Holy Land and likens the unity of the church to that blessing. But here you have Syrian Mount Hermon <laughs> skips like a young wild ox. Mount Hermon cannot stand before the presence of the voice of God in judgment. That's the poetic picture of his might and his judgment we see in this psalm. See, we've gone from the sea, from the waters. We've gone now on the north across Lebanon. We've come down Mount Zion itself, which is this mighty fortress. The, it, the storm continues to, to go further south. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh, the wilderness of Kadesh, down to the south. The southern border at the zenith of the, of the uh, Davidic kingdom under Solomon goes down to around the area of Kadesh down there. It's coming all the way down through the Holy Land, the voice of the Lord. 
in terms of his power and his glory and his justice. And then in verse 9, the voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. That seems completely out of place. (laughs) You see, all of this might that's taking place, everything's destruction before the voice of the Lord. And now you see this very intimate thing where where uh, a hind gives birth to you know to to the fawn or a, a, a doe gives birth to a fawn you, you could see that in terms of contrast if that's the proper translation it's actually hard to translate from the Hebrew um, all of this might 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 but here's a doe God's taking care of her you know trees are falling down everywhere they're not hitting her or her little baby fawn. That's the contrast that you see. But but a, another pronunciation, if you take the same words and change the vowel pointings, it could be, it may be better translated, the oak shakes. You, you'd have the same, the same building, you see, of the power of the voice of God coming in judgment. The oak shakes the strips and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. It shifts again from the earth to those who are watching this in heaven. To the angels. To the glorious heavenly beings that surround the throne of God. And they see the hand of God. And they know the the justice and the righteousness of his judgments. Even in Noah's flood which is alluded to, and I think, behind this. And they cry glory. I've heard people say things like, when we get to heaven, we won't know our loved ones who are not there. We won't remember them. Have you ever heard somebody say that before? And, of course, the reasoning is there's no weeping or crying so that if we're in heaven and if our loved one is not there, if they're in hell, then we would weep and cry in heaven, and there's no weeping and crying in heaven, so we won't know. No. <laughs> we don't understand God's righteousness. We have no earthly idea of how just his judgments are and how glorious his righteousness is. In heaven, the. <laughs> It'll be pulled back from our eyes and we will see and we will understand that God is righteous and God is holy. And his judgments are just and good. Even of our loved ones. And we'll also look at ourselves and say, but for God's grace in Christ Jesus who rescued me. That same judgment would be just and good if it came against me. You see the difference? I heard R.C. Sproul say one time, we're surprised by the wrong things. We're surprised that a loving God would create a place called hell. He says you should be surprised that any sinners are in heaven. You should not be at all surprised that there's a hell. 
He's right. And he's in heaven now. He knows it even more. We're surprised by the wrong things. That's why I said this is a psalm when you read it. It should bring you to your knees. To your knees. And all in his temple cry glory. Can you imagine? Myriads of myriads of angels. The four living creatures we have pictures of in some of these glimpses we have of what's going on there who are saying, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come incessantly, without ceasing, every moment from the moment of their creation when God created them and surrounded His throne with them. And the myriads of angels looking at God's just judgments and saying, Glory. Glory. They're worshiping in heaven as they see God's decrees unfold here on earth and see the glory of God both in judging the wicked but also the glory of God and the gospel. Look at how the psalm ends. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. He is the one who is enthroned. But now listen to verse 11. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. I want you to think about something. We've gone through this entire psalm. There's not a peaceful word in it. It's all about trees being ripped to shreds, mountains being thrown around like they're baby calves, the bark being blown off of trees. It's a tempest is what we've seen, a tempest of judgment. But now there is a benediction and a pronouncement of peace upon the people of God. This is what's so extraordinary. When there's judgment all around, there's safety in the house of God with the people of God. There's peace. There's shalom. The Lord feeds us at the table in the presence of our enemies, Psalm 23. This kind of picture that's all around us. We see the culture. We see the world falling apart all around us. And it is. (laughs) I mean, it is. And we wring our hands in despair. Why? It's the Lord who grants shalom and peace. He has saved you. He has taken your sins and he has separated them from you as far as the east is from the west. It's if you did not commit them. If you have faith in Christ Jesus. He has clothed you with the righteousness of his son. You stand before him in the splendor of holiness, the holiness of his son that's been imputed to you. And he pours upon you peace, shalom. That's the life of living in the light of the gospel. And this life and the life to come. In this life, just reach out and grab it.
earn it. There's nothing you can do to stir it up. You just receive it. It's given to you as a gift. The shalom of God. There's no sin that you've committed that he will not forgive in the gospel. There's no harm you've caused yourself that he cannot heal in the gospel. There's hope in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the midst of the tempest of God, there's hope in the gospel and there's peace. The same Lord whose voice thunders, whispers, peace to you. Let's pray. Father, we we stagger before your word for how profound it is. That you have mercy upon us. And that you grant to us peace. Oh Lord, enable us to walk in this peace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.